a country old And I Been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast Episode 55 I'm Dave Whitson Nobody asked me my name Here's how most episodes work around here I get curious about a pilgrimage topic I read a book, maybe two I search around looking for people with interesting perspectives on that subject. Maybe those are the authors of the books I just read. Maybe they have a cool blog or they're part of a relevant organization. I read and I think some more. Once interviews are lined up, I work on questions for a while, often sharing them with the guests in advance. If they indicate that, it'd be helpful to them in formulating clear responses. That's how it usually works. This is not that kind of episode. A few weekends back, around the time the snow and ice storm that would ravage the U.S. was first sweeping through my home here in the Pacific Northwest, I received a most unusual message on the Camino Podcast's Facebook page. As a quick tangent, you can reach me through the Camino Podcast page on Facebook or via email at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com. Anyway, I got this message. I've never gotten a message quite like this before. It was linked to a profile with no information readily available, no pictures, no posts, not even, it turns out, a real name. The message was short, just a few lines. And it mentioned a pivotal personal experience on the Camino with such brevity and pithiness (laughs) that it stopped me dead in my tracks. I couldn't help but wonder, was I being pranked? Was this someone messing with me? Was this real? My curiosity was piqued, so I replied and proceeded to exchange a few messages. I quickly determined that I wasn't being pranked, that the person was authentic, and that I wanted to hear their story for real. Beyond the central event... I went into this conversation otherwise blind, with nothing prepared beyond my anticipation. So here is that conversation with Beverly Chalman of Tennessee about her pilgrimage on the Camino Frances in June 2019. I'll see you on the other side. Well, it's nice to speak with you, Beverly. Thank you. It's, a, it's just a pleasure to speak with you today. Let's start at the beginning. Why did you decide to go on a pilgrimage on the Camino de Santiago? Well, my daughter invited me, and she's 27 years old, and she had been in college, and she had won a scholarship for her master's. She had been in college like nine years and working, and so we had not spent a summer together in a while. Mm-hmm. Of course, I live in Tennessee, so I had been training for the Appalachian Trail. My thought was, you know, I really wanted to do the Appalachian Trail, and I was the public librarian for many years, and in 2018, I retired. So in 2019, in the spring, she came home and said, I'm going to do this. 
And of course, I thought, no way, because when she was little, we have quite a large piece of property. And when I would take her on a walk around our lake, I would have to piggyback her home. <laughs> so I thought, no way, she'll never make it, you know. And so I just really didn't take her serious. But because I had watched so many Appalachian Trail videos, you know, back then YouTube had the algorithm, I guess, to give you trail videos. And that's how I heard about the Camino. Mm-hmm. Those videos would come up. And so I would watch those. And so I vaguely knew about the Camino, but not much at all. And so then she came home in May and was very set on doing this. And I was kind of like, well, I had this um, one of my properties up for sale. And I thought, well, if this sale goes through, then I I just put it out there that if this happens, then this is what I'm going to do. And that property sold within two weeks. So (laughs) I'm like, okay, okay, I'm going with you on this Camino, which I really still wasn't taking her serious because she hadn't booked any flights anything. And and we really didn't do that probably even to maybe two weeks before we left. But everything just hit perfectly. Any mistakes we made were quickly corrected and got it all right. So it was just a really easy thing to do. And we were very excited. And I had been a world traveler, but my daughter had not. And so I wanted to encourage her in that also. So we flew out of Knoxville, Tennessee. We flew into New York and stayed the night in a hostel, and it was very hot, and I didn't get any sleep, and there were just all sorts of things with buses. Like there, I guess you have to have a card, and all we had was cash, but the (laughs) bus driver let us on and gave us the ride for free. Then we got to London, and then we slept in one of those little cube hotels, but we had to be up really early the next morning, so we only got maybe four hours sleep. I said all that to say that I was very tired and a little bit exhausted when we got there. And, you know, we got to Burritz and people were so helpful on the buses. Oh, you've got to get off here, get to this train. And so all of that was very wonderful and very helpful. And so we got to St. John on June 11th. We got our credentials and spent the night. And that night at dinner, the host told us, he said, oh, don't bother with trekking poles because it's just clack, 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 and you don't need that. And um, <laughs> so we got up early the next morning, and I thought, I'm not going to get a pair of trekking poles because they wouldn't let us bring them over in the flight. And my daughter was like, yeah, Mom, let's get a pair. And, and then I was like, well, I'm only getting leaky because that's the kind I hike with. And so they were like $200. And then I was like, I'm not getting those. It's too expensive, and we'll only need them for a day or to, but thank God she insisted we get them. And so she bought me a set of trekking poles. It was real sweet. So we took off. And of course, you know, you get to Orison within just a few hours. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, let's go on. This is, you know, so up, up, up over the Pyrenees <laughs> we go. 4,500 feet in elevation. Now, the hills here on my farm are about 970 plus at the highest. Mm -hmm. So I had done those hills, but not five of them all at once. (laughs) It's different. So I was so tired. And of course, she was just shaming me because I had been like teasing her about, you'll never make it. I'll have to piggyback you out. That type of stuff. So then she's like, why are you so slow? but (laughs) But it actually got to where if I stopped going up the Pyrenees, my knees hurt so bad to start back that I would not stop. And we were hydrating and we were eating, but not as I should have been. So I knew I was really tired. And so then you get up there and then you've got to come down, you know, through all the trees and oh, all that sidestepping. <laughs> and I'm so tired. And so finally, and I don't think we got there till after six o'clock in the evening, we get to Ross and Wallace. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to climb all the steps. But I'm so tired. <laughs> and so we just take showers and we go to dinner. 
I was going to ask this group of fellas because, you know, we were all trying to talk, but nobody was really talking to them and they were across from me. And so I was trying to engage them a little bit. And I said, do you speak American? And my daughter laughed. And uh, <laughs> and I thought, why did she laugh? Because I wasn't catching it, you know, and I, and I, but I knew I was tired. So I drank a little bit of wine, but just a little bit. And I just went sound asleep that night. I didn't go to the Pilgrim's Mass. I just went straight to bed. That's a whirlwind. All of that travel, <laughs> you've had overnights now in, in New York and in London and then in Saint-Jean and then you cross the Pyrenees. It's amazing how this all came together. You, you weren't taking it seriously for a while, but then suddenly you were on it. And I know that you were so fatigued, so tired that your brain was not functioning to the degree that it, <laughs> it does in normal circumstances. But at that point, as you went to bed in Roncesvalles, what were you thinking about this adventure that you had gotten yourself entangled in? How was it for you at that point? I was 57 at the time, mm -hmm. and I was so grateful that my daughter, who was 27, would invite me and would want me to spend the summer with her. Yeah. But she had all her friends she could have taken or invited, but she chose me. And so the whole time we hiked that day, I just remember praying, oh, God, thank you. You know, thank you. What a blessing to have a daughter. And that really was all day, you know, because I couldn't <laughs> talk much because I needed to save my strength. But I was just so grateful over that whole weekend even. Of course, she lived in Connecticut. She's a costume designer in New York. And so she had ridden the subways and had taken cabs and Ubers and things that I had not done. And I had lost my husband in 2013. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of just alone out there with just these two girls. And so it, I just really felt that this was very special for her to invite me. And I was just so honored. And so I was just putting it out there of gratitude. I'm so thankful and how glorious. And of course, you're going across the Pyrenees. And so it's <laughs> just awesome. You know, everything yeah. is so beautiful. It's breathtaking. And then if you look further, there's snow-capped mountains. We're wearing our puffers that first day, and it's cold. But that night, we stayed at the Collegiate, and we had just brought a sleeping bag of liners. But then we covered up with our puffer jackets. You know, it was still cold. Of course, you get up in the morning. I think that it's maybe monks or friars. I'm not sure who's doing the singing, but it's these males singing, and it's mm -hmm. just beautiful. So you have this almost spiritual experience, you know, because it's just so wonderful to be woken up that way. And so we get up, and of course, it's the second day, so we're very excited. And that night, I was very tired. Hannah, she told me I was so embarrassed to snore so loud. <laughs> so, I was exhausted. I didn't know it. You know, I went sure. to sleep, and I was gone. We had made friends with the two ladies that you kind of bunk in those cubes. Yep. But they were from California, and one of their daughters was going to be attending the University of Tennessee at that fall, which was where my daughter did her undergraduate ed. Wow. Yes, and so they were just so excited to get to talk to Hannah. And, of course, we assured them it's a wonderful university and beautiful, and, you know, as Tennessee is. <laughs> so we get up the next morning. I'm fine. My feet are sore. I don't have blisters, but my feet are sore. Mm -hmm. And so we start walking and, of course, take a picture with the signs <laughs> in Santiago. Eventually, it warms up, and I put on my sandals because my feet are so sore in my hikers. Mm -hmm. We hiked the whole day, and I'm just hiking in these sandals. They're fine, but I notice that I'm getting very tired. I'm very tired, and it's very hot that day. It's probably 87, but it feels 97 or 100. Yeah. You know, it's very hot, and I'm wetting my buff, 
and keeping my hair up with my buff. And in the sun, I would put my cap on with a build to keep the sun off of me. And then as soon as we'd get in the shade, I'd pull that hat off and wet my buff. And, and so I knew I was very tired. I was very tired. We were about two miles out of Zubiri. We're up in the hills where the, the road forks. And I think there's a little bit of a monument there. And we forked to Zubiri. And there's a log. And I said, Hannah, I'm going to change my shoes. Her pack had been uh, maladjusted because things had shifted to one side. So she's going to repack her pack while I'm changing my shoes. I sat down and I knew that I was hot. And I remember thinking, I might have got a little bit too hot today. Of course, you're in that sports clothing. And though I had no kind of pain or discomfort other than being very tired and very hot, I thought, well, the quickest way to warm your body is to heat your core. So I pulled my sports bra up to cool my core. Then I sat down and I just went deep within myself. I kind of just bowed my head to my chest and sat real quiet. I was just going to calm everything. And I went deep within myself. And I remember thinking deep, deep within my chest and then further deep within myself. And immediately, I was before these walls. And these walls were a very goldy copper. I'm mesmerized by the color of these walls. Not only is it alive, there's knowledge in these colored walls. And so I'm just like staring at these walls and I'm like, wow, wow, you know, and I'm just thinking, this is beautiful and I can't take my eyes off of it. And I'm there for some time at this color of these walls. And then I realize, oh, I'm at a corner where two walls meet. Took me a while to even discover that because I'm just so (laughs) fixated on this color. And then I had the thought, well, I'm going to look up and see where these walls go. As I look up, they kind of disappear into like a mist or a fog or possibly a cloud, but it didn't seem that thick, but more of a fog or a mist. And I didn't think anything about it. I'm just so happy. There was such a sense of joy with this color and where I was. Then to my really embarrassment, it was what I was trying to hide, to the left of that corner is Mary, the mother of Christ. And so I'm a little bit embarrassed because, I mean, how could I not have known this? And she's beautiful. I still have in my mind the very image of her when I first saw her. But then immediately, I can't be as I am in this world before her. So I had to be as she is. And she reminded me of my true royal nature, which as a child of God, we are all royalty. You know, we are the royal children of God. And so she reminds me of that. And now I'm back in my royal self, my true royal self. And I'm laughing and we're loving and we're just so happy. I remember I got right in her face, in her eyes. And as I'm in her eyes, you know, there's just such joy. And I mean, I'm just laughing and she's laughing with me and just loving me so perfectly. Then she takes me kind of apart. The one thing I had researched about the Camino was that during the, what's that called? The Masada or the Meseda. The Meseda, you can work out, try to resolve, whatever. And so I had put this one thing. There's this one thing that had occurred throughout my life, and I would kind of like to know the answer to that. But I had not thought of that. You know, I wasn't thinking of that, nothing. I had no idea other than what I'm seeing. And then she takes me aside, and almost like a whisper, she gives me the answer to that. And she resolves that issue. And I'm like, oh, and I think nothing of it. It's like, oh, okay. So then I'm just back with her and we're laughing and we're loving 
And I am with her a long time. And I have a sense. I've been here a long time. I was in front of the walls a long time. And now I've been with Mary days and days, weeks and weeks, months and months. Then I had this thought, I can't wait to tell. And immediately to Mary's left was wisdom. And now wisdom looks like a big whirlpool, but it's out in the cosmos. You know, it's out in the universe. And it spins in a clockwise direction, and it is endless. It's endless, and it contains time itself. I love wisdom. I love wisdom. And I'm looking, and I see myself looking, like almost like a whale, like Manta wrote to look down a whale. I'm just on my tiptoes trying to see it and learn as much as I can from wisdom. And I should have said this before I left Mary. Before she told me the resolve to my issue, but after she returned me to my royal nature, reminded me of who I truly am, she downloaded me everything. I knew everything. I mean, I knew everything, and I knew how safe we all were. So now I'm with wisdom, you know, and I'm understanding it all. And there's complete safety because once you know the answer to everything, there's nothing to debate. You know you're safe. You know how it all works. And so I'm with wisdom, and I just don't want to come away from wisdom. Wisdom is beautiful. It's wonderful. I can't wait till you see it. To distract me from wisdom, this is the way I interpret it. Mary parted a curtain like a veil that I could kind of see through, but once she parted it, I could see all of my family. And I don't remember being with my family, but I know that I was because I remember laughing and loving with them and that we loved each other just perfectly, just as we were meant to love each other here on earth. And it was wonderful and very joyous. And we were all laughing. And you have this laughter from over there because there's such safety. It goes to such a deep level because you understand everything. You understand how safe you are. There's nothing to debate. We're all just flowing in unity and love. So, I'm with my family, but I remember I wanted wisdom, so I went back to wisdom, and I'm just loving wisdom, and I'm looking into wisdom, and it's just wonderful, laughing and joyous, and I have the thought, I can't wait to tell, this will save the world, and immediately, there's a face right in my face, and I'm thinking, I know this is a woman, but this must be Stephen, because it's the face of an angel. I'm not getting it. But I catch over her shoulder a leaf, a leaf up against the sky. It's kind of fuzzy, and I blink to see as I had just been seeing. But now when I open my eyes, it's as if I've been dropped onto the pages of a giant storybook. I look down because it's so bright, and I look down, and I catch my hiking shirt and my flesh and my neck right above my hiking shirt. It horrified me so bad that I tried to swipe it from me like you would a a spider or something from me. And so now she's telling me, I'm grounding you, I'm rubbing your feet. And everything she is doing is the life came right back into my feet and right up through my body, just as she was massaging my feet. And this is the first moment I know that I have been dead. I did not know the whole time I was there, even though I was there. For quite a long time, I never knew I was dead the whole time. (laughs) But I know from the looks on everybody's face, (laughs) when I opened my eyes, it was quite a sight looking at the shocked faces, expressions that were staring back at me. They're talking, and finally I can hear. And I think I said to my daughter, I said, what happened? And, And they're trying to tell me. And I 
realize I've forgotten everything Mary told me. Mm. And that I'm not going to be able to save the world. And I began to cry. And the first thing I said was, I went somewhere. And I began to tell them. And then Stephen, who was really brief from California, said, well, that may be, but take three drinks of this water. And so they're <laughs> bringing me back. When I was with my family, I remember that all of a sudden the scripture about those who leave their homes and their mothers and their fathers will gain a hundred. And that's Matthew nineteen twenty nine, I think. And I knew that to be true. I knew that to be true. When I first came back, I had the image of Christ when he was talking about humble yourself as little children. And my first thought before I started to cry was that this little child wants to throw herself on the ground and throw a tantrum. And that was truly my first thought. I wanted to throw a tantrum because I wanted to be back there. You know, it was just so, so different. And I couldn't believe when I swiped my flesh, I couldn't believe my great big royal self was stuffed back into this flesh. And I don't care if I'd have been Miss America, you still wouldn't like it because you're so much bigger and so much more glorious than what you are here. Eventually, they hydrated me and they put my shoes on me and they got me up and Hannah put her backpack on her back and put mine on her front, on her chest. And we still had to hike about, I'd say a half mile, maybe a mile to where do you know the man with the refreshment truck and he has the basket that if you want to get a spouse, you donate a clothing item? I don't think he was there when I when I have been there most recently. Is that before the big downhill? That's right at that. Yeah. On that major highway. Mm-hmm. Right there when you cross that highway. He's a very handsome man. And so I'm sitting there. And when we came down that hill, when they saw Hannah, everybody erupted in applause because I think that they thought that it was going to turn out differently, you know, that I was not going to go out on foot, <laughs> you know, yeah. and everybody erupted in applause and enough travelers had come by and gone down to where they knew that something had happened up there, you know, and I, I could tell everybody was really watching me, but I still wasn't getting it. I mean, I'm so exhausted. I cannot speak. All I can do is put one trekking pole in front of the other, and I can only say two words, and that's Nini and Titi. <laughs> <laughs> so my daughter became Nini, and I became Titi. The man at the uh, fruit truck, he was Spanish, and he did not speak a bit of English, but he translated through Google to my daughter, your friend looks wrong. And he then let her know she'll never make the descent. She'll mm-hmm. never make it into Siberia. And so he was so kind. He said, I'm closing at 3.30. And he's like, I'm going to drive you to Suiza, which is our hostel for the night. Mm-hmm. And so that's what he did. I think that, wow, all these Spaniards drive like Mario Andretti. Because I'm going <laughs> to throw from side to side. But when he goes around one of these curves, I catch view of myself in the rearview mirror. And no kidding, I'm ashen. I'm like a bluey gray color. And it frightened me so bad that I never looked again. So when we get to Suiza, they're offering all the pilgrims lemonade or beer. Well, all they give me is a glass of lemonade. (laughs) (laughs) They never offer me any beer. I would love to know, I'm sure that you asked Hannah afterward, what was Hannah seeing during all of that? You're pausing, you're cooling off, you're going to tie your shoes. And then what is the story from her perspective? I'm so glad you asked. 
because, well, her pack had shifted. And so she's opened her pack. And I have sat down. She said that she saw me bow my head. And she just thought that I was just taking a minute. Then she's like busying her pack, busying her pack. And she said, just all of a sudden, I just slumped down off of the log and basically did a face plant in the trail. Then her pack fell on top of me. Oh, and all no. her belongings spilled out to cover me. <laughs> so we had this joke that she was, you know, trying to hide the evidence. But anyway, <laughs> so the a mother and daughter, Bree and her mother, which I think her name was Genoa, came along and the mother asked, do you know her? And Hannah realized then that I was under her pack and had fallen. It just kind of all happened at that same second. And Hannah screamed. That's my mother. She just stood there. She was so frozen in shock and fear that I think she just froze and let them handle it. But later, the mother came to me and told me, you have no idea the trauma that you put her through. And of course, I didn't mean to, but she was so traumatized. And I realized this about two days later also, because I kept trying to tell the story. And when I would tell it, she would relive it. And so it was very hard for her. And so we had a very couple of days. We just stopped talking. Of course, I couldn't talk, really. For about four days, I just had to save all my energy. And I also knew the moment I came back, I knew that Hannah was going to want to send me back to the States. Mm. But I knew also that Mary had healed me while I was in her face, in her eyes. I knew that she had healed me and that I would make the Camino. I knew that I would. And of course, I did in 31 days. You kept walking. Yes, yes. You, you walked the very next day? Out of Zubiri, yes. And then it's the next day, Pamplona. You know, we got to the next big city, and we stayed at that really nice hotel, the Capitol, I think it was called. And we just took a day off. I was in such shock from what had happened that I didn't know how to resolve it. I finally said, okay, how long was I gone? And Hannah, to my dismay, said, less than a minute. But I knew I had been there five months. So you try to wrestle that. And so then I'm thinking, what? But also, more than that was the deep sadness that I had let Mary down. I felt like I had really disappointed her and let her down. Now, I'm not Catholic, and I was raised to where that idol worshipped. I mean, that's kind of what I was taught. That seems really ugly to say now because you know, I'm on the other side of it, but maybe I didn't have proper respect or, but I'm so glad it happened, but I'm not Catholic. And so I really had no idea about Maria of the Camino. So you can imagine as once I was better and we started going into the Pilgrim's Mass and then at once we sang to Mary and, and I'm like, wait, what? You know, because it's like, this is the very Mary that saved me. I'm not sure I would have come back without her. I was before her. She wasn't before me, but she met me at the moment of my need. It just became the Maria of the Camino was so much more real to me than maybe even to others, you know, because of this. 
And so then I wanted to learn it all. But at that time, at the beginning, I was so exhausted. And and I was also in fear that Hannah was going to want to send me home. (laughs) You know, and I didn't want to go because I knew that I was back. Like, I knew I was fine, even though I wasn't. Like, I had some real discomfort in my upper right leg. And there was just a lot to come back from. The term dead tired, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) You know, I just sat down and died. But I had such great grief over that I had forgotten, and I just really felt like I was a disappointment because I returned. I felt like even though I might have been the dumbest person there because I didn't ever know I was dead, but I know that wanting to tell was what brought me back. And so I wanted to tell, but I couldn't understand Of course, I didn't remember everything that I knew, though I did understand quantum physics, and there were lots of things and still lots of things that I know that I didn't know before. But I had felt like I was maybe supposed to remember everything, and of course, that's unrealistic. But at the time, I was so disappointed with myself, and so I had to wrestle with that. But more than anything, I just had to stay alive and keep walking. And once we got to Pamplona, we stayed overnight, and we might have stayed two nights. In Pamplona. I can't remember, mm-hmm. but we did treat ourselves to a very nice hotel. And then I started to be able to eat. Of course, I was really hydrating the whole time because now we realized that I had to do way more. And so did my daughter. You know, we both started really sticking to the water and, and eating right. So it took me about four days. I know a little bit of the Bible, and I just kept telling the Lord, no, you have to help me with this. I have to understand how could it be a minute, less than a minute, she said. So I thought 30 seconds. I'm going to say it was 30 seconds that I was actually dead. But how could it be? There has to be an explanation. And so I knew that scripture that the Holy Spirit leads and guides us into all truth. And so I just kept putting a demand. I kept telling God, because I was staying awake all night, too. I couldn't sleep. It would be like one, two in the morning before I'd get to sleep because I'd just keep wrestling with it. I'd be like, God, your word tells us not to lean on our understanding, but in all ways to acknowledge you and to call on you, and you'll show us great, mighty things that we know not. You know, every word I could pull, I was pulling it to, to put a demand on it. Finally, early, early in the wee hours of like the fifth day, Just all of a sudden, the same way that the scripture about houses and mothers and fathers dropped into my spirit while I was there, all of a sudden, the scripture, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day, dropped into my spirit. And I grabbed my phone and ran (laughs) to the ladies' room with that calculator, and I did it wrong. And the Holy Spirit's like, no, that's not right. Do it again. And so, you know, I just have this knowing you did it wrong. Do it again. And three times I did it wrong. And finally, I remembered to divide in the, the 60 seconds into it. I wasn't dividing it up. According to that scripture, if you do the math, how long is one second there? How long is it? It's almost five days. So if I just <laughs> took the minimal of 30 seconds, days. Yeah. Yeah. And so once that happened, I mean, I burst into joy. It just, you know, really hit me a little thank you, thank you moment. And then all of a sudden I knew, don't worry about everything Mary told you as you need it. It'll come back to you. And it certainly has. And it certainly has. The next person I met that we hadn't met before, we walked with the two women from the first night on the third day. We met up with them in Pamplona. And so we walked with them the next morning, 
and we're way up in this hill and they all of a sudden they go there's Stephen, <laughs> and he's <laughs> way down off the trail and so all of a sudden they're calling this young man Stephen, and he runs all the way through these fields and comes out and he starts walking with me and i share it's the first time I shared this whole story. Other than I shared it with these two women at the refreshment truck, they were going to help walk me down because I was like, sure, then I could walk down. But once I got up, I couldn't even walk. And so that's when he drove us down. So then they introduced me to Stephen. So I met Stephen. About a month after I came home, I just had to say something to that food truck vendor. And I wrote to Suiza to ask, who was that man that drove me there? And they write me back and they say, his name is Jesus. And he runs a <laughs> refuge. So I'm like, wow, this is so wild, you know. And, and so, uh, so the whole Camino just becomes this whole unveiling of things, of these small spiritual moments, very spiritual moments. In your first podcast, you talked about, are you Catholic or non-Catholic? I think it's all the same thing in a sense. When you're on that Camino, it's like everybody is Catholic to a degree. It's a spiritual thing, and just like being Catholic is spiritual, just as any other, it's a spiritual journey. And so I think that I was just met where I was at, and really it was just a glorious, like I've never regretted it. I was happy for the experience. I was glad I came back, too. But I'll <laughs> tell you something about eternity. It lasts a long time. It lasts a long time. We're here to play, to have fun. We're here to learn, but we learn through play. And so we're supposed to be traveling and seeing the world and doing these things. And so, you know, everybody's like, well, I hope I make it to heaven. Yeah, yeah, but we've got a long time there. So while you're here, have a good time. You know, that's really what I felt. And then with the COVID, the pandemic, I really felt that safety came back to me, that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what it is. We're all safe. We are all safe. Everyone walking the Camino has experiences from their lives to process. That's part of the benefit of it, right, is to, is to reflect on moments in our lives to that point. You have something remarkably consequential to process as you continue forward, and you still had the vast majority of your pilgrimage in front of you. <laughs> 29 more days. <laughs> Are there moments from that where you gained particular insight into what had happened? Are there places that were pivotal for you as you came to terms with this experience? Yes, I think it's the next day on the third day. We hiked to Zab what's that? Zabadita. Zabaldica. Okay, yeah, where the St. Stephen's Church, and we went that extra, and of course, that's a climb, you know, mm -hmm. and we went that extra bit because Hannah wanted to ring the bell. <laughs> but I had this need to tell, because I knew that something extraordinary had happened. Now, Hannah was traumatized and didn't want to hear it, and that was fine, and I totally understood, but I had such a need to tell. Of course, the little lady there, I don't know if she's a nun or one of the sisters, but she was probably 80 years old, 80 plus years old. And she was so gracious and she was about to close, but she let just us two, we were the last two. Of course, we're looking at the statues and this was really one of our first experiences really in a church for any amount of time. Mm -hmm. We had gone into some of the cathedrals, but real quick, we weren't Catholic. So I think we had the mindset that maybe we were just visitors. I don't think we understood 
exactly the Camino at that point. So anyway, this sister is there, and she can speak some English. And just all of a sudden, I just said, yesterday I died, and I was with Mary, and I forgot everything she told me. Because now I'm still wrestling. I haven't come to the realization that day is a thousand years. I'm still wrestling with that. I forgot everything she told me. And I told her, I said, I forgot everything she told me, and I started to cry. And I said, but I'm not even Catholic and words of wisdom, just the best thing she could have said, she said, it does not matter. And I was like, oh, you're <laughs> so right. You are so right. And it was just this moment of connection with her. So my daughter went up and rang the bell, and that was really nice, you know, how it rang out. Then we came down, and right as we were leaving, she grabbed me, and she kissed me on both sides and hugged me. And then she hugged Hannah and told us to head a certain way. But it was just one of those moments that was very meaningful. Then there was another moment where there was a priest, and I wish I could remember what town we were in. It was a very small church, though very beautiful. And right as you're going on the outskirts of the town, there's the church. And so we went in, and he was dressed all in the black robe, and oh, he was so beautiful. And he was young, and he did speak a little bit of English, but very limited. But he asked, did we want the pilgrim's blessing? And I said, yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And so he blessed us. I just felt I really needed it. I needed that help because I still hadn't gotten to the realization of being okay with what had happened. But then as we were more rested, once I gained my strength, then we could do all the things in the evening and go to the masses and take the tours of the cathedrals and walk through and really do it. And then we started lighting candles and, you know, it became just from church to church because we had thought maybe we weren't welcome because we weren't Catholic. So we didn't really know a lot about the uh, Camino. But as we went along and I learned about Mary and then like the Church of the Ascension and that belief about how Mary had guided and You know, I was just astounded because I was like, wow, this is something's really happened and I need to tell these people because this is what the pilgrimage is about. It just seemed like I never met anyone who spoke enough English to where I could. It was just a very difficult thing with translation. But all the time there were just moments, moments that were amazing. Even to tell it now just happens in a way that It's almost like a little miracle every time someone will just pull it out of me. And usually it's because they've had a, which I don't really like the word near-death experience because it's basically it's not true. You're not near dead. You are dead. You know, James 2.26 tells you that the body without the spirit is dead. But anyways, it seems like when I get in the presence of people who have similar experiences, it pulls it out of me. Why do you feel the need to tell? This is way beyond my frame of reference, but it's a deeply personal story. And I imagine that there are people out there who would hear the story and some would marvel at it and find it a glorious manifestation of what they hold dear. And others who would be immediately skeptical, who would find it incredulous in the most negative meaning of the word incredulous. Yes. What is it about this experience that creates this this craving, this urgency for you to share it? Well, the whole time I was there, every time I transitioned, when I went from Mary to wisdom and from wisdom 
back to here three times while I was there. I had the thought, and I can't remember if the first one was at the wall and then to Mary or if it was with my family and then back to wisdom. But three times I had the distinct thought, I can't wait to tell. I can't wait to tell everyone. I can't wait to tell this will save the world. And as soon as I came back, I had a moment where I thought it was just, well, they think I'm crazy, but who cares? You know, who cares? <laughs> and I began to tell. I began to tell. And I've told the story to anyone who will stand still and listen. Now, some people receive it and other people do not. Some just walk away. My sister, who's a minister's wife, actually told me, don't tell that. Mm. But here's the thing. I came back with the intent of telling. And so I felt like that's why I came back was because, number one, I never knew I was dead. And number two, I wanted to tell. So surely it is my duty to tell. And also, what if I get back there one day and I don't tell (laughs) and someone is standing there accusing me? You know, because there are going to be people on the other side, I think, that are going to say, you should have told me, or you shouldn't have done this. You know, I think there are going to be all sorts of things, but I could be wrong. But if it helps anyone, I want to tell. And also, I have told people who needed to hear it so badly, and they'll tell me, thank you. I told this one person, and it was a very spontaneous thing. It was in a courthouse. She was, I think, the Register of Deeds, and she had lost her child. But all of that was blank to me. I just, all of a sudden, it was just a pull on my spirit to tell her, and I told. And when I finished, that woman just grabbed me and hugged me. And later, then I learned about everything. I just feel like that's what I'm supposed to do. And in fact, I was kind of worried about telling you because I hadn't told the story in a while because of the COVID. But some men came up, hunters, came up on my land last week. And for some reason, I knew that one of them had had a near-death experience, and so it pulled it right out. Well, first, I pulled it out of him, and I just knew. And so it just kind of has this pull on you to tell and, and when to tell it. But really, I'll tell anybody. If they stand still long <laughs> enough, I'll tell anybody. And I told many people on the Camino who really loved it, and then I told others who walked off and shook their head. And that's fine. You know, we're all at different places of reception. What was it like to arrive in Santiago at the end of this utterly extraordinary pilgrimage? It was wonderful. Of course, I was ready to go home by then, you know, because (laughs) I was pretty tired. So it was wonderful. But our best days, now we rode the bus on to Finisterre, but we had a blast there. Oh, it was just wonderful there. We took bicycles up to the lighthouse and came flying down that road and (laughs) Oh, and swam in the ocean and took the sunset cruise. It was just wonderful. So then when we came back from Finisterre to Santiago, that's when we got our Compostela. You know, and most people I noticed cried when they got to the big cathedral there in Santiago. And we jumped for joy, made pictures, and we did have fun, you know, and we stayed right there at just a block from it. So we were at it many times. But when I got to the uh, Compostela office, I had just this most wonderful person there that was helping me. He was older than me, but he could tell I had been through something, even though I didn't say anything. But he told me, he's like, very good work, very good work. And I 
burst out in tears. <laughs> so no one knew why I was crying except for my daughter, who was way down at the other end getting hers. And she came and got me because she knew. And so that was a very, very emotional moment. Just on that credential that it was done, it was just very, very wonderful. It was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for you as you carry this story forward? Well, when I came back, of course, everything had changed. I had my home that I've lived at for almost 40 years. It's quite a large farm, and I put everything up for sale. I want to travel, and I feel that I have a ministry in this just to talk and to tell others. But I just don't want to be in one place on the same land as I've always been on. I just want to move on and do something new. I think I want to go to Malta first. And then I have a brother who lives in Pristina, and so I want to go there. And But we're still with the travel restrictions. So what we did last summer, all the kids came to the farm, and we bought a bunch of kayaks and paddle boards, and we've just been on the lake swimming and bonfires. They come and hear my story. It just blesses me, blesses them. So that's just kind of the same thing. And, and I, of course, I really want to go back and finish the walk down to Zubiri, even that just that one little piece, and see if I can find Jesus, you know, just kind of finish that up and just revisit. I thought Spain was beautiful. At the south of France, I just thought it was all very nice. And I'd like to just go live there maybe a month and then move on somewhere else and live a month, you know, kick about a bit. <laughs> well, Beverly, this has been, it's been awesome to just get to listen to you tell your story. So I'm grateful to you for reaching out and for sharing it out. Well, thank you for this opportunity to tell. It was a very, very good Camino, and I would do it all again in a heartbeat. In the days after that conversation with Beverly, I stumbled across an article. It's in the New York Post, which is hardly my go-to for scientific research, but it featured a conversation with Dr. Bruce Grayson, a professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia, and it caught my attention. Fifty years ago, Dr. Grayson was called upon to treat a college student who had overdosed. He did so, largely to no immediate effect as the student remained non-responsive throughout that time. But she survived. The next morning, he spoke with that student, who he was stunned to discover had, in her own words, seen Dr. Grayson speaking with her friend while she remained unconscious. Grayson told the Post, quote, My immediate reaction was almost terror. This can't be happening. After a few days, I thought this couldn't have happened. It must be some trick that people played on me. That was a pivotal moment in Grayson's life, spurring him onward to focus his research on near-death experiences. In his estimation, some 5% of people have experienced a near-death experience, something that's left lasting consequences for them. As is probably clear to anyone who has listened to this podcast for a while, I come to the subject of pilgrimage from a more secular perspective than others. 
I've never followed a formal religion nor had anything resembling a coherent, informal spiritual orientation. In my younger years, that approach to life was accompanied by a disparaging attitude towards those who were more oriented towards faith and belief. In my life, one of the most notable gifts from pilgrimage has been the way that it has made me less prejudiced towards such people. I'm grateful for that. As I spoke with Beverly for this episode, it occurred to me how differently the conversation would have been with young Dave, who might have been focused more on trying to actively disprove or challenge her account. Young Dave would have been critical, incredulous. The difference now isn't that older Dave believes it wholesale. It's that older Dave recognizes that older Dave's opinions on this are irrelevant, or at least not a value add. Older Dave wants to try to understand Beverly's experience on its own terms, to see as fully as possible what it meant to her, what it continues to mean to her. There are all kinds of experiences in this world that are beyond my understanding, beyond my frame of reference, beyond my immediate interest or comfort. I mean, 5% of people have had near-death experiences with lasting impacts. That's like at least one person per albergue that you're sleeping in on the Camino, right? Like that's a lot of people. And so I've come to appreciate how valuable it is to listen, to be open, and to try to tamp down that critical voice, at least some of the time. And you know, I, I hope Beverly's experience here makes her life richer moving forward that she's able to play and have adventures with family and friends, that she's able to positively influence the lives of those around her to find the people who need to hear the story that she wants to tell. (laughs) What greater wisdom could one strive for in this life? That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Beverly Chalman for sharing her story with me. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, SoundCloud, wherever. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thank you, as always, for listening. Nobody asked me.